0: It was during this time period okay john if i can just go on here a little bit further um where i have learned everything that mormonism has to teach me and by the way earlier you said you don't you don't want to say it's a pride thing or it might have been prideful to you mormonism my experience not everybody mormonism is built upon pride yeah it is ah you agree yeah yeah okay so i think it's built and i'm not saying that everybody who's a mormon is prideful All right, no, 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 That's not what I'm saying either. Okay. But for me it was pride and I, I would never have identified itself as, as pride then. But the, the glory and the beauty of Mormonism is you can look down and laugh at other religions and people who believe in that crap because here they believe in the Trinity. That's stupid. Who would believe in the Trinity? Yeah. Right. It's obvious that they are three separate beings and one of them has a resurrected body. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, that's obvious, right? Yeah. How could you believe that? That's so dumb. And I would watch like TBN, Trinity Broadcast Network in the 80s. Or infant
1: baptism or, you know, there's a million things we made fun of. Absolutely. Or paid clergy. Paid clergy. Because who in the world would pay their church leaders? No kidding. That's outrageous. You can get anything you want in this world for money, John. (laughs) Non, you know, non, uh, you know, I get infant baptism. Like there's, you know, not having the right authority. There's just a million things that we made fun of people for. Absolutely. And I think part of the problem
0: is, is that, you know, as years go by, I start finding out that all the things we made fun of other people and other religions for we do ourselves. Right. Yeah. And it's just really becoming, uh, unnerving there. But, um, it's not just pride in that way. All right. Because there are Mormonisms within Mormonism. Joseph Smith set up this thing where there were circles and concentric circles, circles within circles, and and you know secrets within secrets. It's like uh, what Tony Stark says about Nick Fury: even his secrets have secrets. He's a super spy.
1: Um, <laughs> you're a nerd. I'm a nerd. You're quoting Nick Fury, you're
0: a nerd. No, I was quoting Tony Stark. <laughs> if I was quoting Nick Fury, That's... that would be a nerd.
1: That would be okay. You're quoting Tony Stark. That's still nerd territory.
0: Yes. That would be ant meat boot. <laughs> that's quoting Nick Fury so (laughs) um, you're a nerd
1: I've seen them all haven't you have you seen all the Marvel movies you know I think I didn't see the second Thor movie I'm just going to admit that I didn't see the second Thor movie Dark World other than that I think I saw them all okay well I don't want to go off there but uh, make mine
0: Marvel I'm huge on Marvel Comics I had a huge comic book collection when I was a kid between the ages of 13 and 15 how can you
1: not mention that I just did in your story, like earlier on, I just did In earlier on. <laughs> You're I try formative. and play
0: it down. I try and play it down. <laughs> Spider Man, absolutely. Me too. I had three heroes as a kid: Spider Man, Batman. Sh- no, no, my God.
1: what the heck? Why not Batman? Sorry, what? That's DC. Did you not? But did you not watch the the Batman series with Burt Ward and and Adam West and sure I did. Joker and Catwoman. You didn't yes. like that?
0: I was a kid who went to the theater in Waco when they actually released the Batman movie.
1: Yeah, where where he uses shark repellent and he runs around. Trying to throw the bomb off the dock, but he doesn't want to (laughs) throw it at the mother with the baby or the nun walking by. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. (laughs) (laughs) But you're laughing. but You remember it, but you didn't like it? What the crap? Oh, no. Batman's an American hero. That's where I'm a kid.
0: You know, I'm six, I'm seven, I'm eight at the time. But I grew up and I became 13 and 14 and I realized
1: that Marvel has... The best comics. Do you remember Spider Man being on Electric Company, the little cartoon? Yeah, Spider Man. Where are you coming from, Spider Man? Yes, yeah, so nobody it. knows who you are. <laughs> you, do you remember that?
0: Yeah, I remember Spider Man in uh, his cartoons in 67, 68. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love Spider Man. Yeah. I love Spider Man. That's what got me into comics. It, we had just moved to Oxnard, California. This was another one of those things with my mom, right? oxnard california 73 it's september i'm starting junior high school at a place i've never been to before and i don't want to be but anyway spider-man saved me somehow i got a hold of a spider-man comic book i think it was number 125 gwen stacy had just bit it and i didn't know anything about gwen stacy right but spider-man's emoting i won't let you die not like when not like when is on the cover (laughs) and i read this thing and i just i was hooked I yeah. thought this was the best thing I'd ever seen. So Spider-Man became one of my heroes. Uh, second hero is Robin Hood. And third hero was Sherlock Holmes. Hmm. That was my holy trinity Okay. as a kid. All
1: right. Are you glad we covered that? Yeah, I'm super glad. We're going
0: to come back to By it. By the way, Thor Dark World, I think that's the best Thor movie. A lot of people don't like it. The one I didn't see? Yeah. That's awful. And that's okay. A lot of people don't like it. But I think that captures his character. Because he's not a joker. I I shouldn't get off on all this nerd stuff. Thor's not a joker. He's a brooding Norse god.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I have no idea where we were when we got off on the Spider-Man thing. Well, I know where I was going, so that's probably good enough. Where I was going (laughs) is that what happens is I've
0: learned. Oh, I was talking about pride, right? So you learn everything that Mormonism has to teach. And I had this concept early on that when I knew everything about Mormonism, that would equate to knowing by heart everything that the missionaries had taught me. So, when I know everything that's in the missionary discussions, I know Mormonism. And I found out rapidly that wasn't the case. But like I said, there's a certain limit of Mormonism, right? It's pretty complicated inside that compared to other Christian religions, but there are boundaries beyond which you are not supposed to go. And after a while, you've heard all that stuff. You've read all that stuff. I've read this a million times in different books saying the same thing different ways. And I'm ready to try and find other stuff. And that's where you start going into what other church leaders have said earlier on, right? You start going outside Deseret books and you go to Bookcraft. <laughs> Bookcraft, not correlated, still pretty, pretty along the, the right line. But now you start finding out things that, wait a second, they said things that were different earlier on. And you start thinking, John, you start thinking, this is the deeper knowledge. Right? Yeah this is the knowledge that the regular Mormons, they don't know because they never studied and you start finding this stuff out. And now you feel like you are within this inner circle of Mormonism and that's the pride thing, right? Yeah, it's the pride thing. Um, and so you just continue to go like that. But I found out all this stuff, what ended up happening to me was that I became very interested in the Adam God theory.
1: And what year is this around?
0: Well, my, end of the 80s okay end of the 80s so all through the 80s it's part of this this thread that weaves through because i got exposed to the adam god theory before my mission yeah before my mission i'm reading some anti-mormon literature that my friend that my my brother the jehovah's witnesses brought home to me here read this and it's got adam god stuff in it i was so upset about it I was very upset about this, because this is not what the missionaries have been teaching me, and it sure looks like Brigham Young is saying something very different. So I went to, uh, there's two missionaries um, at the church, and I walked up to them, I didn't even know these guys, and I said, do we believe that Adam is God? And they looked at each other, genuinely surprised, I think, and said no. And I said, oh, well that's good, because you know these people over here were saying we did. So that was it for them. Then on my mission, I get exposed to another pamphlet, in English, even though it's in Japan, I won't go into all the details there, has all these quotes. Brigham Young, other church leaders, Adam's God, different context, right? And I'm going, oh my gosh, here it is again. How can this make sense? Because I know the truth, and the truth is what the church teaches, which is about you know how we understand God, Jesus, Holy Ghost, and Adam is somebody below them and different. He's not God. And I tried to make sense of that. I stayed up late at night in my futon trying to make sense of that. I could could not make sense of it. And so I finally said, look, I'm going to bag this for now and I'll, I'll pick it up later. And I did after my mission. And so there were a number of things that happened there that I learned because I started studying the original things and I studied the, the apologetics around the Adam God theory. And there are three main apologetics, all of which I found were a crock first apologetic is Brigham Young never taught that. Okay. That's crap. Yeah. The second apologetic is
1: journal discourses.
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and frankly, just to jump ahead. I mean, he taught it for 25 years from 1852 to 1877 when he died over and over and over and again on all these different forms. Right. And, even got it put into the lecture at the veil in the St. George temple shortly before he died. So it would be there for like another 25 years. So it was taught in the church for basically 50 years before it silently removed that lecture on the veil, even though vestiges of it remained up even until 1979 when I went through the temple the first time. And I had no idea that because there's a lecture, right? Uh, I had no idea that was a vestige of the Adam God theory. The part about where it talks about how the creation, uh, is to be understood figuratively as far as the man and the woman are concerned. Do you remember that part from the endowment? And I always thought, that's a weird thing to say. Okay. I guess it's just figurative. Hmm. As far as the man and the woman are concerned, not anything else. Um, But uh, so they say, okay, so he never taught it. And I found out, no, that's not true. And they say, well, he taught it really once. And there they're talking about journal of discourses, volume one, pages 50 through 51, which is the famous articulation about Adam is our father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do. And he's misunderstood there. Okay. There's a strained interpretation we can put on those words to make him. uh, So he's not really teaching that Adam is God. And then you find out, no, he said it over and over and over again. And he made it very clear. And then the uh, third thing, oh, he was mistranscribed, right? Yeah, they wrote it down wrong. Yeah. And I'm just going, okay. so he teaches this for 25 years. And then you find out he gets in a knockdown drag out with Orson Pratt over the doctrine. Orson Pratt almost gets kicked out of the quorum of the 12, right over this very, very problem. So it's not like we're misunderstanding it now. Orson Pratt is misunderstanding it. And he understands exactly what Brigham Young is saying. No, it's not a problem with. We misunderstand it. And it's not like Brigham Young, you know, would say, hey, okay, I'm sorry, I said something. Uh, the other day in conference, and it's been misinterpreted as meaning that I thought Adam was God. That's actually not what I mean. Let me clarify, right? Never does that because he teaches a consistent message for 25 years. So I end up finding out all of these apologetics that I had learned and I had used are false and they're wrong. And then I find out that in 1976, Spencer Kimball in general conference says that the Adam God theory is false doctrine and Brigham Young never taught it. Okay. Now, when you go back and look at his words, he actually uses some weasel words there. He doesn't actually say Brigham Young never taught it, but that's the impression that I got. And that's the impression I think he meant to give. No, he never taught it. This is false doctrine. And I started thinking, what do you do with that? Well, anyway, I ended up writing this huge manuscript on the Adam God theory. Okay. And me in my still wanting to make everything work, I figured, okay, the Adam God theory does not work with the scriptures and the teachings of Joseph Smith, and those are the things that I'm going to take as my foundation, and what things have to align with, right? Scriptures and Joseph Smith, Brigham Young theory, uh, Brigham Young theory, Adam God theory does not work with that, but also neither does the modern theory. Modern theory contradicts it in some respects. So, without going into detail, what I said was, if you take away the unscriptural aspects from the Adam God theory, and are left with the bones that are left, and you look at the modern theory, and you strip, strip away the unscriptural aspects of that now you can make them harmonize. Now they fit together. Separately, they won't. It's oil and water. They will not harmonize. As much as I tried, and believe me, I tried. Now they will. So I wrote this whole paper about it. My gosh, it was like uh, 200 pages long. But it familiarized myself very much with with the subject.
1: Uh, j- just I have a, a side observation, uh, and I'm going to tie in Marvel Comics here for a second. You know, something you were saying earlier that on the one hand, when we're in this mindset, we're fancying ourselves as these sort of real Mormons, these deep, true intellectual Mormons that are going after the truth and 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 you know care about making sense of it all and then on the other hand, you mentioned that there are rings around what you're allowed to think and ways you're allowed to think and what you're allowed to talk about and I don't mean to be insulting to the Mormon studies community, but it's sort of this this sort of approach of, of pseudo scholarship, where you, you really think you're an intellectual, you really think you love and value science and truth. But it number one, it's, it's all only you, you can only think it's anti science or anti rationality in the sense that there are always bounds to where you can go. And if the evidence or if the logic take you outside of those bounds, you can't go there. So it's the pseudo pseudo science, pseudo scholarship sort of mentality but the other thing that's weird about it is it's all freaking made up. It's like debating about whether the elves could kick the dwarves' butt in The Lord of the Rings. You know, it's, it's like Marvel Comics. And so isn't it weird that we spent so many years or decades of our lives trying to square the circle, trying to circle the square, trying to make sense of whether the hobbits or the elves or the dwarves could win. But it's, it's tomfoolery because it's freaking all made up. You, do you think about that and how, how serious you took it mm-hmm. and how silly it all <laughs> ends up being? <laughs> yeah. Well, there was a time period where
0: uh, I'm really, really immersed in this whole Adam-God thing and trying to come up with my theory, my theory, which will be the super theory, which will uh, yeah. finally harmonize these two things that could not be harmonized before. And I'm making wonderful discoveries. And I am thinking about this all the time. In every down moment, I'm walking to work. I'm walking uh, back from work, uh, obviously within walking distance. And my thoughts are consumed with this all the time. And I'm thinking about it, and sometimes something will spark and I'll make a connection. And I honestly think at the time that I am piecing together a map of the universe and how the gods relate to each other. You're figuring it out. That is real.
1: Yeah, you're like solving the—you're you're fighting the Holy Grail intellectually. You're, you're putting it all together. The grand unifying theory— Oh, yeah. Of Mormonism. Absolutely. Right? I'm figuring it out. You are
0: FM. But then, you know, there's other times I think about it and I think, am I just kidding myself here? I mean, I, is this just a lot of mental masturbation yeah. that I'm doing here? And does what I am thinking and this thing I'm constructing in my head, even though I think it makes sense and blah, 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 does that have any relationship whatsoever to do with what is out there?
1: Yeah. So again, that ambivalence was it Aries or Pisces? What did you call Pisces. it? Pisces, Pisces, yeah, yeah. And that was another thing about like
0: even early on, the celestial kingdom supposed to be this wonderful place, right? I could, I kind of wondered, you know, is it really gonna is it really gonna be a celestial kingdom? You know, what happens after death? Am I really going to be in the celestial kingdom? And uh, how wonderful is that going to be? I, I've always had trouble actually just accepting it at face value. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you say of course. Why do you say, of course,
1: yeah, well, you have, Well, I think, I think, I, I think I relate a lot to your story because I think it was always true. I was always committed. I was always hardcore in my mind, but I always had doubts. I always had doubts. I always had questions. I always had concerns. Mm-hmm. So it's in this, it's this being, being an Orthodox Mormon, especially one who cares about truth. You're always in this dynamic between trying to reassure yourself that it's true to rely on confirmation bias, to gather the evidence that makes you feel reassured that it's true, but also trying to scrutinize the doubts and the questions and beat them back and find ways to dismiss them. That's just like what it is to, to try and be a a thoughtful Mormon. I think, I think it is too. And that's been my experience too.
0: And that's one of the reasons that was such an unusual experience right, right before my mission, I say to Don Capel, I mean, we're going to go and two years of our lives on missions and i say it's true isn't it yeah and he has to do whatever he has to do yeah. to oh
1: well, yeah of course yeah sure, sure, of course, yeah, course it's true. true of course yeah sure 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 yeah
0: and i'm taking that as the real him and yeah. it's the masked him yeah so then i can uh yeah
1: were you aware of let's just say 80s and 90s were you aware of sandra tanner and gerald tanner were you aware oh, of... you mean the Antichrists? Yeah. Were you yes. aware of, of of a Fon Brody and No Man Knows My History? Hmm. Were you aware of Sunstone and dialogue? What was your awareness of, of all those things? I think I got a hold of a
0: Sunstone magazine in 1989 during that period when I'm reading Flim Flam. And there was an article in it about uh, uh, a theory about the production of the Book of Mormon by... What is it called when a person writes a book without... Um,
1: like Osler, the loose translation theory.
0: No, I'm just talking about channeling.
1: Non, it's uh, like channeling. Automatic, automatic Thank you. Writing. Automatic
0: writing. And I read this article and I really don't like it. It's making me feel bad. I don't like it that there is an alternate theory to the production of the Book of Mormon that doesn't involve Moroni. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I really don't like that. So, uh, and this whole, all this stuff is happening during that time. That was, that was quite a time for me, even though it was just a couple months. Uh, a lot of things were changing inside of me. But I do remember that also in the 80s, this is before that, right? There was a time when I was brought face-to-face with learning something that wasn't positive about the church. And... I was doing some research, probably on on an apologetic article, and there's a book I want to find him at the Austin Public Library. It's evening time. It's dark out. I'm up in the stacks. It's the religion section, and I found the book that I wanted. It's not obviously printed by Deseret. It's about the book of Abraham. There's something going on there, and I can't remember what the issue was, but I reach up. I pull it out. I open it up. I find what it is that I'm looking for, and I start reading, and I'm experiencing cognitive dissonance, though I wouldn't have used the term at the time. I'm feeling uncomfortable it is not telling me what I want to hear. And I remember closing the book up and starting to put it back up on the stack. And I thought, you know, if Mormonism is true, it can withstand scrutiny. And I took the book back down and opened up and I kept reading. So all the turning points, or at least most of the turning points that I can identify in my life, they're very small things, but they ended up being very significant to me
1: so the, so period the there was a time period where you were this apologist guy, this ch- pseudo church scholar guy, this gospel doctrine hero, Sunday Sunday morning gospel doctrine hero guy, mm-hmm. and I get the sense from listening to your uh, some of your interviews or some of your episodes that there's a point where you kind of put down the apologetics.: Yes, now, let me ask first, were you ever like friends with Daniel Peterson or like were you ever an apologist? you know, partnering with the other mainstream apologists, Lewis Midgley, you know, that whole crowd, Daniel Peterson, who was the other guy, William Hamlin, like, remember that whole crowd? Mm-hmm. Were you ever like homies with those dudes, like being a part of, of what they do or part of the fair crowd? Were you ever that type of apologist where you were kind of formally engaging with those guys? Uh, I would say no okay. to that. There is something more to
0: that. So, as I, as I, once again, these are, things are happening at the same time on different levels. So there are different threads going on. But um, I'm still interested in apologetics, though. After a while, here's what happens with apologetics. Okay, after a while, I start recognizing that the whole point is to win the argument. That's the whole point of apologetics: is to prove that Mormonism is true and the person who's attacking you is wrong. So. I knew all the arguments I made up some arguments, right? But then I started realizing that, well, let me put it this way. I had this idea in mind. I was going to write a book that was going to prove Mormonism true beyond a shadow of a doubt or beyond a reasonable doubt. I must've been in law school, right? Beyond a reasonable doubt. I even had the title picked out. It was going to be called diamond truth. Right, Diamond. Yeah, taken from Joseph Smith, truth, diamond truth, and God is my right-hand man. So like rough stone rolling, but this would be another thing. It hadn't been written yet, but diamond truth. So I have the title ready to go. And I start thinking about it. I didn't actually put pen to paper, but I start thinking about it and I start putting these things together. And I start realizing, you know, I don't think I can prove Mormonism true beyond a reasonable doubt. And I started realizing that... Well, around what year is this? This is 88, 89. Okay. Uh, Toward the end of my apologist phase. And I start thinking, you know, a lot of the arguments that I'm making, you know, it's like a come to Jesus moment. A lot of the arguments I'm making in defense of Mormonism, in order for me to win, it depends on the other person not knowing the counter argument. Because I know the argument. I know the counter argument. And then I
1: know the counter to the counter argument, right? But if I can win on the argument alone, Boom. I've won. And when you talk about Jeffrey Holland, I, I enjoyed the episode where you talk about Jeffrey Holland's interview with the BBC and how the guy asked oh, Jeffrey Holland... make if, way for dodos. Yeah, where, where the guy asked Jeffrey Holland, is it true that Mitt Romney, <laughs> you know, would have done the blood oaths? Yeah. And Holland responds by saying... There, no, there, there no, are no. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and if he never allows him to know about the issues... Right. ...then he's won. Right. And you talk about... Both Daniel C. Peterson and Holland having more of an allegiance to winning than to the truth. Right, and that's right? what apologetics is all about. Yeah. Uh, whether it's religious or you know political, whatever it is,
0: that's what it's about. Is you are there to win, to defend at all costs, and that has <clears throat> a certain function. But I'll tell you what that function is not. That function does not lead to learning yeah. more truth. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. You're locked in. You have the ramparts here of the castle. You're in the castle. You are defending the castle walls 24-7. And as long as you're doing that, what you have done is you have made this castle a prison for you. Because you are locked in there defending it. And you can never go out of the castle, out into the woods, and go see what else is out there in the world. That's what the uh, image that came to my mind was for apologetics. That was actually later. But um, But but, this is
1: also pre-internet. I mean, if you're in the late 80s… So this is pre-internet. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is, I'm stubborn. It took me a long time to get through this, but maybe part of that is because there was no internet.
1: Are, are you doing all this in isolation? Like, do you have any buddies, apologist buddies? Are you communicating with anyone or is it just like RFM sitting in his basement, like studying Mormon, weird Mormon stuff and having dialogues with himself in his brain? Basically.
0: It's pretty much just me.
1: And you're not publishing stuff or... That comes, that comes now
0: toward this point. Okay. Because it's toward the end of the 1980s now that I'm reading the scriptures and reading the Book of Mormon and all of a sudden I start seeing things in them. And I think that that's not so much a spiritual gift, although I, I don't want to you know take credit for something that comes from outside of me. But I think that a certain point comes with uh, most people that when they have familiarized themselves enough with a rather large uh, set of data, like scriptures... That uh, all of a sudden they can start connecting dots. Whereas if you read it through once or twice, you're never going to see that. So with the Book of Mormon, I started seeing something in the Book of Mormon. There were other things that I saw, like in the Old Testament, ideas that would come to me and I'd end up fleshing them out and writing them down. Uh, There was one that I called, first one was the Endowment of the Pentateuch. OK, because we've got a temple endowment. I started looking at the Pentateuch, the five books of uh, Moses and starting to see in it perhaps a, a representation of what happens on, in the temple endowment it lived out through the experience of Abraham and his uh, Isaac and Jacob and then the ch- Moses and the children of Israel. And I put all that together. It's certainly not uh, hugely persuasive, but it was an idea that I had. I sent it to farms. And uh, John Sorensen read it and he wrote me back a, a, a letter saying he didn't think much of it and denied. Um, he also didn't like me alluding so strongly to things that happened in the temple. In it, though I thought I was kind of circumspect. But anyway, I kept looking at stuff. That same article, by the way, that same article I had uh, sent to Joseph Fielding McConkie. Yeah. At BYU. Bruce's son. Yeah. And he was the, you know, the doctrinaire guy of uh, Bruce's progeny. So he was a professor at BYU. I had read his books in the 1980s and I liked him. I thought he did a good job and I sent it to him and he was much nicer. And uh, he, he wrote me back a handwritten letter, which I still have. And it said, you know, uh, I read your paper. I think you write well and you think well, uh, both of which are kind of uh, not in a lot of abundance amongst Mormonism right now. And, you know, I'll show it around to other, uh, other professors when they get back from summer break, I encourage you to, uh, to continue with your writing. And, oh, he had said, yeah, about how there's not a lot of writing or thinking among Mormons now. He says, I suppose we are too busy going to
1: meetings. Yeah. Bruce R. McConkey had a little bit of a rebellious streak. Yes. He was doctrine doctrine. And I know this is Joseph, but Bruce R. McConkey was a doctrinarian, but he also mm-hmm. loved truth and loved thinking and scrutiny and, You can hate, you can hate his thoughts, but you can't argue that he was thinking Mm -hmm. and he was engaging. Yes. And so I, I think some people don't realize that, that he actually, my understanding of Bruce R. McConkie is that he did resent a lot of the ways that Mormonism was being correlated and watered down and neutralized. And I'm sure that spilled over into his son. Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. I remember
0: going to my one time to BYU for, uh, what is it they have, Education Week at the end of the summer. So August 1994, I think it was, and being in the the big uh, auditorium where he was speaking, and of course had to be in a huge auditorium because he was a big draw, Joseph Fielding, McConkie, and he was speaking. I remember thinking, that is the only man I've ever seen who pronounces God as a four-syllable word. Mm-hmm. But he was great. Yeah. It was that accent that I wasn't used to. And he was like, God.
1: Mm-hmm. So he, he turned you down as well?
0: And so- oh, he didn't really turn me down. He encouraged me. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. It was a very, very nice letter. He encouraged me. So I keep going. So now I'm reading the Book of Mormon. I continue to see things now. Because I'm immersing myself a lot and I see things and I see something here in, uh, uh, first book of Nephi connections between, uh, the vision of the tree of life in first Nephi chapter eight and Nephi's vision in first Nephi 11 through 14. And I end up with this theory, which seems to be supported by the text, which I have never heard before or read before, which is that. The Nephi's vision, which he receives, the the panoramic vision is actually a symbolic interpretation of the symbolic elements of the tree of life. So I write all this up. I send it to farms. I'm at the office and I get a call from Stephen Ricks. And he's talking with me about the paper. And he says, well, I like this. I don't like that. And I think this is going to have to be cut. And that part over there, that's probably too speculative. And he tells me all this stuff and then, but he's never said they're going to publish it, right? He had assumed I knew that, I think, because he's calling me. And I'm just waiting, waiting, waiting and said, finally said, so what, you're going to publish it? And he goes, oh, yeah, I thought that was obvious. Hmm. And I restrained myself from just going, yippee. <laughs> I was so excited I was going to get published. And that was in the um, the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, which was just getting off the ground in the early 1990s. So the title of the paper is Lehi's Dream of the Tree of Life, Springboard to Prophecy. That's what it is. So that you, you got in. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow, that's great.
0: It was huge. I was so thrilled. These are the guys that I had been looking up to and wanting to be in this crowd, although I'm not down in Utah, I'm still out in the hinterlands, but I'm published there. So then I I write another paper, which has to do with um, something that I had been seeing in the Book of Mormon in the late 1980s and continuing, which is that there is this real emphasis in the Book of Mormon on grace, which was not reflected in the teachings from the leaders of the church, and in fact, in many respects, was contradicted as I was seeing it. By teachings of the leaders of the church. Um, And I can tell you basically about this. Uh, I've written about it elsewhere as well. Uh, The the name of the paper is um, Cry Redemption, the Plan of Salvation is Taught in the Book of Mormon. And that came out, and that was published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies too, believe it or not. But the thing about grace in the Book of Mormon is that grace is something that is given without are having to do anything other than ask for it. And the repeated phrase in the Book of Mormon, which comes, uh, happens a lot, is called cry mercy. They cry for mercy, okay? And really quickly, okay, there are several stories in the Book of Mormon that are obviously put there for illustrative purposes. So I'm not talking about the sermons in the Book of Mormon. I'm talking about what is taught by the stories. And over and over again, what you have is people being born again, in the Book of Mormon, we find that expression over and over. And what we find is that we have wicked people who get, for one reason or another, struck down. And they are rendered, rendered immobile. Okay, Alma the Younger is the obvious example. But it happens to other people in the Book of Mormon. And they're rendered immobile. And then they, they, they have a vision while they're asleep, whatever you want to call that. Unconscious is probably not the right word. And then they, they come to and they're born again. But the stories are told in such a way that they are born again while they can't do anything. They can't even lift a finger. They cannot do anything except cry to God for mercy. And so that's Alma chapter 36. Later on in Helaman 5, I think it is, you get a bunch of Lamanites who actually are, they're standing, but they get frozen. They're frozen. They can't do anything. And there's a number of stories like this, but uh, I, I go over that in the paper. But it's very clear that these repeated stories are trying to teach the fact that being born again is not a process. How many times have you heard that in the church? It's not. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's called being born again. Being born is not a process. Right. It's an event. It's not
1: a conscious process. Right. It's something that
0: happens it at happens a certain place you. in time. Yeah. Happens right? to you. Yeah. Yeah. So being born again, it's not it's a, in the Book of Mormon at least. It is an event. And you can say, that happened at that time right there. It's not a process. But of course, the reason that the church today teaches it's a process is because, well, it doesn't happen in the church today like it does in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. The church has gotten so far away from its roots. It's amazing. In the Book of Mormon, it's a miracle. Now it's something that's supposed to take place during your whole life, so you never notice that it doesn't happen.
1: Yeah. That was no, pretty why,
0: well put, wasn't it? That's why
1: Denver Snuffer people <laughs> exist.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They are selling something that Mormons want, they're desperate for, which is the Mormonism that of Joseph Smith.
1: Yeah, and Kirtland.
0: Yes, yeah. absolutely. And the Mormonism today, you know, more and more people are waking up to the fact that these guys don't have it. It's kind of pablum. Yeah. Yeah. It's There's gru- gruel.
1: <laughs> There's no Spiritual there there. Spiritual pablum and gruel. But, yeah, yeah,
0: they've got nothing.
1: Yeah. So, so in the late eighties, you're starting to publish with apologetics and what, like at some point you, you stopped doing apologetics. So what happened? Right. And this is this shift.
0: Okay. Because when you're talking about a connect connections in the, the textual analysis of the book of Mormon, that's not really apologetics. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not writing these articles or these book reviews. You're not
1: defending the faith.
0: I'm not. If I am, it's only tangentially because That's, it's a remarkable connection to me in the book of Mormon. Okay. But it's not out there apologetics and talking about how the book of Mormon is really teaching salvation by grace. I'm not talking about the fact the church isn't teaching it anymore in the article, but I can't help but kind of notice, right? That's why it stuck out to me that I'm reading the book of Mormon. It seems to be teaching something. It's not being taught now. I mean, Spencer Kimball at the time I joined the church was famous. It was probably in the miracle of forgiveness. He was talking about salvation is something we do ourselves. We lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps, is I think the expression that he used. So the impression I get joining Mormonism and what I'm taught is we perfect ourselves by dint of our own ability, our own will, our willpower, and Jesus is there like a janitor with a mop to clean up the mistakes we make. That's what the atonement is about, Mm -hmm. to clean up those mistakes, but it's up to us to perfect ourselves. And real perfection is required. Book of Mormon seems to teach something else. Okay, so that's... Now the shift is happening where now I'm not so much interested in defending the church because I've sort of given that up. It's run its course. I'm not really interested in it anymore. And... I'm interested, though, in seeing what the scriptures have to say, because apparently they have more to say than just what the leaders are saying and more to say than what I've been reading about. So those both get published. Now, this uh, Cry Redemption paper right, is published in 1994, I think it is, and I write a sequel to it because I'm continuing to read the Book of Mormon. There's more about it, and I can't remember what it was called, but I write a whole paper about that. I submit it to them, and by that time, they had enough of me, and they go, "Eh, we're not really interested in that. I don't think they really told me why it was that they didn't like it, but there were some conclusions that I'm drawing from the scriptures, which I can understand why it is they might not have liked. But um, they're, just, they're just doctrinal. So that happens in the early 90s. And then... Yes. <laughs> did it just freeze? I think it just froze there for a second. Was it? Okay. No. Anyway, we we lost all the viewers. How many viewers are there right now? By the way, 184. It's pretty good. We got to
1: get that we up. Get we got to get, get those up to numbers two, up. Didn't get up to 220, but
0: oh know, my gosh, we're doing okay. Okay. Well, it's a three day weekend here starting. Um, no. So then later on, I end up publishing a, uh, well two papers in BYU Studies because I'm still into this. My gosh. And I ended up publishing a paper in uh, 2006, and that has to do with the historical development of the doctrinal concept that Jesus is our elder brother in the Spirit.
1: Okay, so for the the mid-90s to the early 2000s, you're just like swimming in trying to make sense of Mormon doctrine, Mormon theology, Mormon scripture. You're not uber defender of the faith. You're just... You're trying to keep square in the circle and circling the square, trying to make it all make sense, trying to dig deeper mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Yes. For the mid nineties to the early 2000s, two- but doing whatever
0: it is that, you know, I'm, I'm asked to do. It's a strange dance, you know, uh, trying to come to the truth when the truth is leading you away from number one, uh, what you already believe is the truth and what you have given how much of your life four. Yeah. Yeah. There's that whole sunk costs thing. Yeah. I mean, my goodness. So yeah, it's very difficult. And this is where I have trouble understanding for my own self and my own life, what it is exactly that happened, even though I lived it. So a lot of things are going on at different times, but if we can just talk about publications, you know, that's good. I mean, I had a, I, uh, in the end of, uh, 1989, beginning of 1990, I had this debate with a church of Christ minister, which was published in their magazine. And we ended up recording our different parts and, uh, it was played on some kind of Christian radio over in Tennessee or something like that. But that was fun. Um, but let me see here. So that's apologetics, but then going on to 2000 and Six? Did I say? Yeah, 2006. Yeah, this whole idea. Because here I'm doing this whole analysis, and now here I get into history. I've never done history before, but I've been a lawyer, so I'm going to try and write a history paper for BYU Studies. Wow. Okay. So I do that, and it, like I say, uh, this whole idea that we hear all the time is that Jesus is our elder brother.
1: Okay, wait. Can I pause you? Please. So... 2004 is when Mormon blogs start appearing. Hmm. So that's uh, Times and Seasons and then By Common Consent and Feminist Mormon Housewives. 2005 is when Mormon Stories starts. So this is, you know, by 2006, this is when sort of we have this resurgence after the 1993 and September six. It's almost like, you know, 10 to 13 years after that we start seeing this emerging of, of attempts at robust Mormon scrutiny again after everyone had been per, petrified over the excommunications. So as you are thinking about 2006, are you at all plugging into these emerging uh, you know, areas of discourse, whether it's the blogs or the podcasts or the, or the forums that are out there, or exmormon.org? Are you aware of any of these things going on by 2006? I am not. Okay. I am not. I will become shortly thereafter, but okay. at this point, I am not. Okay.
0: Um, but the, the, this article, which I'm writing, obviously before 2006 when it's published, it took like two, yeah. more than two years to go forever. through this yeah. process. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but the, it's just this idea that we have that um, Jesus is our elder brother, and that's become a very fundamental principle in Mormonism you hear it all the time you hear it in general conference you hear it in your ward your stake meetings whatever Um, and I wanted to do for a very certain reason which would be too complicated for me to get into why it was that my my interest got focused there how did that develop because I was kind of aware I'm pretty familiar with stuff I'm pretty familiar with the scriptures I'm pretty familiar with Joseph Smith and what he taught and I'm not really sure that I remember him ever teaching that explicitly. And I'm not sure it's in the scriptures because we have certain proof texts in the scriptures that we will pull out in order to try and prove that doctrine. But I've studied enough to realize that those proof texts don't actually stand for that proposition. Okay. Obvious example, you got the new Testament where Jesus is described as being the firstborn. Okay. But when you read it in context, see, this is the problem. You start reading things in context. You start realizing that these proof texts may not support what it is that I had in the past used it for. I'd use it for this. It actually means he's the, he's the first resurrected See, in context, that's what it means. So I start trying to go back into Mormonism and into Mormon history and trying to do some research and figure how did this concept become so much a fundamental part of Mormonism today? And what I ended up finding out was, A, it's not in the scriptures, not Bible, not Old Testament, not New Testament, not Book of Mormon, not Pearl of Great Price, not Doctrine and Covenants. It's not in any of that. It's not in any statements of Joseph Smith that we can look at and say, he actually said that. Okay, There are some later statements by people who said, oh, I heard Joseph Smith say this right, and write it down. So there are late statements that might have it. So I have to deal with that in the paper. But basically what ends up happening is it ends up being a uh, an idea that people decide makes sense. And I think Orson Pratt was the first person to actually say it. And he said it in the month that Joseph Smith was killed, I think, June of 1844. And, of course, he's on the I think he's on the East Coast, so he's far away from Nauvoo at the time. But this is a very attractive uh, idea, and it ends up being repeated over and over and over and over again until finally it just becomes part and parcel of the whole thing. So I write this whole paper about it, and it was fascinating to me for a number of reasons, one of which is it describes how... A fundamental doctrine of Mormonism can, first off, not be based in the scriptures. Second, not be based in its founder, and third, it just sort of kind of develops, you know, to the point where it is something that all Mormons believe. I, all TBMs believe, as far as I know. Um, and so, anyway, so that gets published. It took two over two years. Um, there were some people on the board who didn't like it. They did not like it. And this is where I started working with um, John Welch, who goes by Jack. He is such a great guy. He was so nice to me. He's the editor of BYU Studies at the time. He may still be for all I know. And he really liked this. He appreciated this. I think I'd had some email contact with him before this. And, you know, he says... You got to rewrite this. I'm sorry. You got to rewrite this. And actually, this is going through another person. I'll try and simplify it. So I had done several rewrites of this. And when I get the, the corrections, um, I do it very quickly and get it back in. So I had done a couple, maybe three rewrites of things and sent it back in. It had been over a year. It had been over a year now since I had heard anything. And I'd kind of forgotten about it. I mean, it's sort of still in the back of my head. But over a year, I haven't heard anything. And then I have a dream one night. And in the dream, the phone rings. It's the living room. The phone rings. Uh, my daughter grabs the phone, picks it up, and listens, and then hands it to me. I say, "Who is it?" And she says, "It's John Welch." I say, "What is it?" It's a, it's about your paper, really. And she says, "Yeah, it's going down in flames." Oh. In this dream. And so I I wake up, I think, well, that's a funny dream. But it reminded me about the paper and I hadn't heard anything. So I go to the office, turn on the computer, and I've got an email from John Welch. Oh. (laughs) And I hadn't heard from him for a year. That was a real funny thing. I told him about that story later. He thought that was kind of funny too. But what he told me was, is that, look, we're still having problems getting this past the board. Okay. So there's three things that you can do. One of which is you can rewrite it again and I hate to ask you to rewrite it again. And you, you, know, you're fine telling me, you know, forget about it. I've had it. Uh, he understood that I could be frustrated by this point and I might've been a little bit. Um, you could, you know, you can do this. Number two, you can go publish this somewhere else. This is a great paper. There's lots of other places that would be happy to publish it. You're not locked into BYU studies. He was very apologetic, very nice. And uh, I said, and the third thing is, look, you could trust me to make the rewrites so that you don't have to do it if you trust me enough i'll make the rewrites and then we'll get it published and i just said look i trust you totally very familiar with your work you're a great guy tremendous scholar great human being um yeah you go ahead and do it so he went ahead and did it it got published i read it and i actually i was surprised they kept in as much as they did so that got published in 2006
1: okay Let's, let's talk about when things started going south for you, if that's okay. Unless there's other parts of your apologetic career. That's kind of interesting. And this is more scholarly as opposed to apologetic, I think. Scholarly. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah.
0: Even though I did publish a study in seven about Hebrew numerology in the book of Mormon in 2014 in BYU studies. Yeah. So once again, there's all these things
1: that are going like this. Where did they go south? Where did they not go south? Well, when did things start cracking for you? When did you stop working with Mormon's scholarship? I stopped going to church five years ago.
0: And that is when my major piece and my major contribution to book of Mormon apologetics is published in BYU studies. Isn't that crazy?
1: Okay. Yeah. That was the seventh thing. What was that five years ago? What was 2014. that? 2014? And that was what you publish. That was a study in seven,
0: the the article about Hebrew numerology in the Book of Mormon. Okay, okay. I maintain to this day, in spite of those, and you know who you are, who argue to the contrary, that they don't like it, uh, and you know they're opposed to it, and that's fine. You can have your opinion. But I maintain this is the holy grail of Book of Mormon apologetics, is this discovery about
1: Hebrew Hebrew numerology in the Book of Mormon. Okay. It sounds like debating whether hobbits or trolls would, would beat each other. No, it's not. It's
0: strictly (laughs) a textual analysis. Okay. It's amazing. I can't believe it's there in the book of Mormon. Why is this in the book of Mormon? Why should this be there in the book of Mormon? And I don't talk about Joseph Smith and I don't talk about God. I just talk about the author. Somebody wrote the book of Mormon and whoever wrote it had to do this. Okay. And what they do is remarkable. Is it beyond human possibility? Absolutely not. Obviously, somebody did it. But it sure is remarkable to me. So, And I could tell you a little bit about what it is, but I know we're going long, and I don't want to get too dry. And I know most listeners probably are not interested in this part, but it was published in BYU Studies back in 2014. At least I came up with a snazzy title for it. It's called A Study in Seven. And um, yeah, I think that's pretty remarkable. I think the Book of Mormon has an awful lot to recommend it. I think it's an amazing book. Do I think it was translated by the gift and power of God? Well, maybe, maybe, but let me ask the question differently. Do I think it actually describes a bunch of Israelites who went from Jerusalem to America and developed into a large nation and had prophets among them? No.
1: So, Wanting, and I just like I like to pursue the story before we talk about kind of theories and 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 feelings and beliefs and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm looking back. I just did a Google search on emails from you. The first email I received from you was in 2010. I must have made it a request for a few good apologists. I was always trying to get apologists to come on Mormon stories. Yeah, Daniel Peterson would interview with me with with no success. <clears throat> it was hard. I mean, I got, <laughs> no, that's not true. I got John. I mean, one of my first interviews was with John Lynch. Uh, oh, affair uh, affair, and uh, and eventually Dan Peterson interviewed. Sorry, Dan Witherspoon interviewed Dan Peterson for Mormon Stories. Right, I and listened to that. I was to able that. to get Givens and Bushman, who were kind of neo apologists. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, and I got Brian Hale on. So, I mean, I've had I've had several apologists on Mormon Stories, but mm-hmm. you reached out to me in 2010. Um, for the first time. And then I'm seeing 13 and 14, you either, you know, emailing me about things. I see it. I see something here that says new BYU studies article. So it's by 2014 and 15, you must've been listening to Mormon stories Mm -hmm. and starting to plug into kind of more critical stuff against the church and what was going on. So Mm -hmm. let's pick it up there Mm -hmm. and just tell me how you went from, how did you go from, publishing stuff with BYU studies and farms and whatever book of more journal book book more of studies to becoming RFM and uh, doing the things that you do now. What was that path? Like, this is the hard part for me to untangle.
0: It is very hard for me to understand how that happened, except different things are happening at the same time. So 2014, I sent you that email. That's about the study in seven article in, uh, BYU studies. Um, the reason I said that about uh, you having trouble getting a, an apologist on your show, I think back there, that was quite a while ago, and you may have been seen as a little bit more safer ground at the time um, with some of those people. Uh, are they still willing to come on your show,
1: some of those people? Now? Yeah. No, I mean, since, since the excommunication, it's been super hard to get faithful people. Even, yeah. even Terrell Ter- and Fiona Givens, one of the most ridiculous exchanges I've ever had in my life, uh, after my excommunication, I'm trying to get Terrell and Fiona to come on Mormon Stories, and I say, "Hey, I'd love you to come on Mormon Stories." And they're like, "Oh, we don't know what we would say." And I'm like, "Well, you know, let's talk about your newest book because they, you know, after after uh, the Crucible of Doubt, they they came out with a couple more books." Mm-hmm. And Fiona writes in response. She says, "Well, I just don't want to give people the impression that we're, you know, the the church's gurus for faith crisis stuff." you mean you mean the impression that they have studiously cultivated for years yeah yeah she literally said that and this was while she and Tara were touring around the world doing these firesides and yet that's the reason so anyway it's yeah it's been really hard to get to get believers and apologists to come on Mormon Stories after the excommunication and I think that was by design because they they their biggest concern was that believers were listening to me and and because I was somehow in but still questioning, that felt safe enough for believers to listen. And so by excommunicating me, they make me unsafe. Mm-hmm. And and they also, because of the temple question about affiliating with with apostates, you know, believers and people who want to stay in the good graces, just like send so in a dialogue were condemned at one point. Right. I became condemned. And so BYU professors and church employees and and people who have Deseret book contracts uh, all of a sudden don't want to come on the podcast. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because by condemning Mormon stories and me and making it so faithful people don't want to come on, then it naturally becomes perceived as more angry and more anti-Mormon. And I think that's all what they're going for. Now, that assumes that someone's orchestrating this and being thoughtful about it, but I don't Whether or not it's conscious, I think that's kind of what they were going for. So anyway, I don't know why you asked me that, but that's my answer. Because I knew it was a long time ago,
0: and I knew that none of them had been on since, and I suspected there might be a story behind it. Yeah. Um, but I want to commend them for not coming on your show now that you've been apost- uh, excommunicated, because that's certainly what Jesus would do. <laughs> Jesus would never come on your show. <laughs> he would say, no, you're beneath me. I'm too busy hanging out with lepers and prostitutes <laughs> to go on John DeLynn's show. So, you know, he has standards. So... Uh, <laughs> Now, where was that? Oh, and the reason I asked that as well is because, um, John, the other John Larson, thank you. So sorry, John, uh, John Larson, uh, did Mormon expressions. Of course, the podcast, I listened to that. I listened to yours. And by the way, the reason I started listening to podcasts, I might've been peripherally aware of them. I was on a message board or two back then, but, um, no, uh, somebody, it was one of my kids, a teenager got me an iPod classic, for Christmas and I said what the heck is this thing how do I use this and so they told me and I, I managed to download some podcasts and I could listen to them and it was just it was thrilling it was absolutely thrilling I listened to yours I, I'm familiar with so many of these the Daniel Peterson one he talks about the water dousing and everything uh, the ones with uh, Bushman and the Givens absolutely it was just like this whole wonderful world was opening to me Because I have been uh, the equivalent of living in a basement, chained in a basement, being fed on buckets of fish heads. Because I can't go anywhere. I don't have anybody I can go to. There are very few people that I that are safe to talk to to expose who I really am to you Expose little bits of yourself and see if you'll be accepted And then maybe you can expose a little bit more and there's very few people like that But now all of a sudden there's people out there who are talking intelligent people people who know what they're saying They know a lot more than I know and they're just talking out there about all these issues And it was just incredible. It's like having gone through that desert for two years and not finding a, a mud hole but finding an oasis so it was absolutely fantastic. I listened to so many, many of your podcasts. Uh, when you got excommunicated, I wrote a tribute to you.
1: Yeah, on Rational Faith, right? Yes,
0: because I blogged there for a couple of years, from like 2012 to 2014, and it, it was 13 to 15. Yeah, absolutely I did. So thank you for that. You're, right, you're welcome. <laughs> I sent a copy of that to you because I meant every word of it. And talking about uh, you and the podcast and how much they had meant to me. So I put it there, and I'd also listen to Mormon Expressions with uh, John Larson. And John Larson is going through the same thing of trying to get an apologist to appear on Mormon Expressions. Now, of course, <laughs> Mormon Expressions was a bit more snarky yeah. than you were. It's not Infants on Thrones, but it's it's kind of like... Um, you're the celestial kingdom infants on thrones is the telestial and, and maybe
1: john larson was the terrestrial yes so but he could <laughs> not
0: he could not get an apo- an apologist more an apologist on his show to save his soul and he's out there trying to get anybody and he's out there on the the old mad board right uh the one that was associated with fair mormon um and he's trying to you know he's got his little fozzy bear icon and saying, you know, somebody, please come on here as an apologist. And everybody's going, no, no, we won't come on there because the apologists are the biggest pussies. Whoa. (laughs) And you know, it's true. Okay. Whoa. No, they are. I'm so sorry, but you are. And I went to go see, you know, Hillcrest Baptist Church, God makers. Okay. You guys will not go anywhere where you might get asked a question in public. And uh, you know, I think that says volumes about the confidence they have in their position. okay yeah. And they know who they are. I'm not saying it about everybody. Generally, the more uh, nuanced a person is, the more uh, willing they are to go out there and t- like Patrick Mason coming on talking with me and Bill real. yeah, a year ago. yeah because they are more interested in pursuing ideas and knowledge and learning than they are in, defending a rigid position
1: yeah yeah for my my feminist inklings have to say that some some find that p word offensive not just because they may think it crude but because it can be demeaning to women so i just have to throw that out there okay i only
0: meant it to be (laughs) demeaning to the apologist to whom it applies (laughs) male or female
1: but But they're mostly male some say the the female vagina is an amazing miraculous organ so to use it in a way that anyway you you know that you know the argument right uh I suppose (laughs) so I just you know are you getting comments about it uh yeah Ivano just wrote did you just say the p-word no I said (laughs) pussy um so uh so as you're listening to Mormon stories and Mormon expression, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Keep that thought because I actually just remembered
0: what it was. I was going to, yeah, because yeah. he's trying to get an apologist. Yeah. Yeah. I said, look, I used to be an apologist. You want me? You got me. So he says, Oh yeah. Yeah. Would you? Co- okay. So great. Come on. Because I had written little things about book of more and bullseye threads, you know, over there at the mad board, which is now the Mormon dialogue and discussion board, uh, from which I have been banned three times by the way.
1: Does that still exist? I have stuff going on there. Yes. Yeah, okay.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh Dolesville. Okay. It's not very interesting because they have kicked out pretty much anybody who's interesting,
1: yeah
0: and uh, every, there are Anyone still some who's not faith affirming basically pretty much there are still some people who will raise some good issues like Cinepro and some other people, but uh, basically it's not very interesting because there's not a lot of discourse they're trying to make it as much like the Mormon church as they possibly can, yeah, which is very boring and there's there's no, there's no exchange of ideas really, just one idea is allowed, and it's to be parroted all the time. Uh, but yeah, he wanted me to come off, so He said, I'll come on. And so we did an episode. It's episode number 60. I looked it up. It was June of 2010 and it's called book of Mormon bullseyes. And I appear there under my screen name consigliere. Right. So uh, my real name was not used there either. Just consigliere. And we had a wonderful discussion, you know, John Larson, such a gentleman, so nice. He really is. He's very fun, very funny. And I think part of the deal was, is that I was past my rigid apologist stage and I'm on there just to have a discussion and have fun and say, these are some things, you know, and he would push back a little bit and I said, Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And I'd bring up something he hadn't heard. and He'd say, Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And we ended up getting great. I think I remember this episode. Yes. And we had just wonderful comments about it. People were loving it. And, um,
1: yeah, so that was fun. So, Ivana writes, I'm a fan of vulgar words. Aaron Gluth-Spencer writes, she's not offended. Um, uh, yeah, so lots of people. And, and Colette Larson. Hey, Colette, she writes, RFM is hilarious. So... Um, some people appreciate my defense, like Jenny, others are not offended. So okay, <laughs> good. Give you the reports. It's you mixed. keep defending. Some people love it. Some people don't like it. You're the so, apologist now. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to <laughs> be sensitive to my audience.
0: Yeah. I, that's important. Cause you actually have a big audience. <laughs> and by the way, I'm trying to leverage your huge
1: audience <laughs> to come to my little
0: audience and yeah, join my little I, audience so I, we can
1: get a little bit bigger. You do good enough work to where I'm, I'm happy to, to help promote your work thank you it's
0: radiofreemormon.org now i can't even say it radiofreemormon.org we are this little mountain that's cut little stone cut out of the mountain without (laughs) hands it's going to roll forth until it fills the whole earth until it starts shrinking okay and then we're going to change that description we're going to go to the one in the book of mormon that says that uh, the audience will be very small okay it'll be very small and that will prove it's true (laughs)